Welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Studs Terkel. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you support the mission of Studs and you dig the program, I got an easy way for you to show your support. Just head over to patreon.com studs. You'll find the link in the show notes. I offer a range of rewards for your support. You can get some pretty cool stuff for just a couple bucks. And I want to seize a hot minute to thank two studs patrons. First, I want to thank my former student, David, who didn't want to give his last name, formerly a Chicago, now in New York, New York, Dave, thanks for the note. Thanks for supporting the podcast. I appreciate it. I got real fond memories of you. And it means a lot to me that you're supporting my podcast. Big hugs, buddy. Also, I want to give a shout out to a patron of sorts of the podcast. The other day, I had an exhilarating inspiring and enlightening conversation with one Hannah Doherty of Berlin, Germany. Hannah is an artist, bona fide artist through and through. I don't know if I've said this before on the podcast, but I have this vision of doing a season of studs devoted exclusively to the working life of artists. Artists of different mediums, artists on different continents, artists who push the boundaries of their mediums, and artists who push their own boundaries. And look, it goes without saying that these are trying times for artists. I mean, all times are trying times for artists, but these days, in the throes of a pandemic in particular, man, shit's just not right. So I texted Hannah just to be like, hey, would you be willing to talk with me about, you know, is this a good time to be talking to artists? Like on one hand, sadly, artists perhaps have more time on their hands to chat with me on a podcast about their work. On the other hand, maybe not everyone feels like talking. And that's where we kind of got started. And then she consulted with me. She guided me. She warned me. And she gave me some insights into how I might best approach a season of studs that focuses on the artistic communities. And so, Hannah, I just want to take a second to thank you for that. I really count on the guidance of my friends and my listeners. So thank you, Hannah. And for all y'all out there, if you have hopes for the Studs Pod, if you seek to guide what we're trying to do here, if you have a guest that you think I should definitely pursue, if you have pro tips or amateur hacks that you can share with me, do it. Email me at studspod at gmail.com. I guarantee you a response. So thank you, David. Thank you, Hannah. And thank you in advance to anyone who's willing to share with me, to guide me, 
to engage with me. And if you don't have it in you to donate to studs, and you don't feel like shooting me an email, I get it. We're good. We're totally good. But if you're into this podcast, tell a pal or two about it. Maybe recommend an episode or two that you know they'll love. You might want to recommend to them this one, because this episode features our conversation with Guillaume Mendieta, MD, PhD. Gio is a cardiologist with a specialty in ischemic heart disease. She's currently a postdoctoral fellow at CINIC in Madrid and is studying epidemiology in London. Gio speaks matter-of-factly, and rather poetically really, about how her commitment to serving society motivates her to keep insane hours at a high-stress, high-impact job. She gives people a new lease on life, and she brings peace to patients and their families. I think what resonates with me most from our discussion is how Gio finds herself through being there for others. Look, Gio is a very, very special person. I knew this a lifetime ago when she was my student in Barcelona, and I'm reminded of it. Every time she pops into my life, you'll see, you'll see. Please enjoy my exploration into the working life of this not-so-young-anymore cardiologist, Dr. Lina Guillomar Mendieta Barimon, MD, PhD, Guillo. Guillo, you are a postdoctoral fellow at the Cardiovascular Research Institute in Madrid. How do you describe what you do? Hello, thank you. Thank you for having me here. My job right now is performing uh, research with regard to risk factors, to the causes that lead to cardiovascular disease. To get to this point, I went to medical school. I specialize in cardiology and undertook five years of residence at the Hospital Clinic of Barcelona. And I also uh, performed my PhD on cardioprotection in the area of um, ischemia reperfusion injury. So before we get into some of the details of that and you give me the vocabulary lesson that I know I'm going to desperately need. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to devote your life to medicine? So you actually met me at the the time where I was supposed to be thinking on what what it was that I wanted to to dedicate my life uh, to. And at that time, as maybe you remember, um, I was a little, I liked everything a little bit, had no particular interest in something very specific. I liked to play the piano as well. Well, we all took the national exam at the end of high school, the national exam in Spain. Well, you get a national score and, and with that score, you're able to access some careers and the higher the score, the greater the opportunities, right? And I was lucky, I, I got a pretty good grade. And at that time point, really, it was, I think it was my mother who said to me, you know, Gio, I really like history. That was another thing that I was thinking of going into. 
And she said to me, you know, you'll, you'll always be able to like get back to history, but you know, you might lose the opportunity of doing something that you'll probably be able to, you know, like serve to the community and, and to, you know, like help people more directly in, in the medical arena. And, and that's why I really, I decided to study medicine, which was wonderful. Now, with all the humility in the world, for which we all adore you, you said you were, you were lucky to get this high score. But our listeners will soon discover that you have, dare I say, a uniquely beautiful brain. You also had a splendid history teacher, which explains, of course, <laughs> your, 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 your yeah, interest right. in studying history. <laughs> um, um, so you could have done anything, and you could have done anything in medicine, what was the appeal of cardiology in particular? Cardiology in itself um, has to do a lot with physiology. So how the heart works and how it pumps blood to, to our whole bodies and to our brains. And I really enjoyed that part of, of medical school on the one hand. And then on the other hand, I also uh, started working at a um, research institution on the third to the fourth year of my medical studies. I based my PhD studies on this project. Uh, so it had to do with myocardial infarction and how to better preserve parts of the heart after undergoing an infarct. In the end, after medical school, I also had to take another national exam, which was also like based on a ranking. And according to that ranking, again, you were able to choose the specialty that uh, you most wanted. So in the sense that if you were number 50 in Spain, you would have a greater chance of getting what you wanted. Whereas if you were, you know, number 8,000, you would have to maybe adapt a little bit to what was left. And I was lucky again. <laughs> And I was, able, I was able to choose cardiology in, in Barcelona. I'm going to ask you the most plebe question ever. The heart has a profound cultural symbolic significance. You know, people have a big heart. They're big hearted, right? It takes a lot of heart to do something. The heart is also, in many ways, the core of our physical health how much did that have to do with the motivation to focus on cardiology? That's um, actually, that's an interesting question. And uh, now that you ask, because uh, I, I really never thought of it that way. For me, it was either doing neurology, which has to do with the brain, right? The main opposer to the heart, you would say. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but neurology, you know, I, I in the end, I thought I wouldn't be as happy just because there's not a lot of therapies that actually stop neurological diseases from progressing. And so when I thought of myself of seeing patients, um, I thought, you know, like, I don't know how I would be able to put up with every day, you know, seeing patients that have diseases that are progressive, that are terrible uh, in their most severe stages. And I don't know how I would be able to deal with the fact that I wouldn't be able to like give them anything or recommend anything that would make things better. It's a, it's a specialty where you get into a lot of action. You know, you have patients that are very fragile, very 
you know, like if you go wrong on something, you know, things could get really bad. And so I kind of like that the action as well. I didn't know what I was getting into, by the way, I have to say. <laughs> hmm. But also um, the opportunity of doing transplantation, which is also something that I've really enjoyed. And the fact that there's also a lot of subspecialization within cardiology gave me a lot of opportunities to do different things and find whatever suit me the best. So let's try to talk about some of these different things. I wanted to get a sense at the most basic level of what you do every day. So if you would have asked me this question before May 2020, I would have said that what I would do every day is go into work around 8 and see patients during the day. And my days would end around, if I'm not on call that day, and at 5, 6 p.m. And if I were on call, then my day would end the next day. So working from 8 to 5 and then from 5 to 9 in the morning the next day. And uh, after May 2020, I finished uh, specializing in cardiology and I was awarded a fellowship that included a three-year research program where I'm at right now at CENIC, which is the Cardiovascular Research Institute in Madrid. And uh, within this program, the first year includes a master's program in epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So I should be in London right now. But due to, hmm. to the current pandemic, all classes are being held online. So my life in the la last six months has drastically changed. Yeah, for, for many of us, right? Mm -hmm. So let's try to dive into a part of that. You know, you said that you, you, you get into a lot of action, particularly in the coronary care unit. Can you talk a little bit about that work? Definitely. So that's one of the areas where I think that I grew up the most in, mainly because the first time I saw a patient going into cardiac arrest, all I could do is, you know, like take my hands to my head and, you know, like run around the room instead of actually doing what I was supposed to. Uh, but it has to do with uh, really... Um, really frail patients in the sense that they're very unstable. You know, one moment they're talking to you and they're sitting there cheerfully and then the next they're going into, you know, ventricular arrhythmias and cardiac arrest. And, and you need to act and you need to act fast and think fast. And this is something that is not easy to tell the truth. Um, for me, it, it was hard. Also, because I think in part, I've always been very self-demanding. So, you know, if I don't do things right away or you know, react quickly, you know, feel like I'm there 120%, maybe I think I'm not doing things well, you get, you get the sense. I have a lot of stories. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to hearing some of them. Can you talk to me about the steps you took along the path from being the Gyo who was intimidated and scared by dealing with a patient in cardiac arrest to the Gio who takes the bull by the horns and gets to work competently and confidently? It's a learning curve. Like 
like uh, I guess in in all areas of life, you know. So when when you're in a panic situation, right, you can either raise your hands and run around the room and yell, or you can act. Maybe you know, like feeling more confident and realizing that I was the cardiologist in the room, you know, that if anyone had to respond, it was myself. And actually a year and a half ago, I was at the gym outside of my work. I had had a very hard day that day, I remember. And it was eight at night and I was on call. So it was a Friday. And on Saturday, I was supposed to go in to work at nine o'clock for 24 hours. And um, so a man in the spinning uh, class the, the class had finished and he collapsed. People said, oh, you know, so, someone fell, someone fell. So I went to see him and he was in cardiac arrest. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was like, oh, my God, this never stops. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> I'm outside of work and, you know, there's cardiac patients around me following me. So I started, <laughs> yeah, I started doing CPR and I said, call an ambulance. And they went to get an ambulance and I asked for a defibrillator if they had one. And then after, after doing like maybe 10 or 15 chest compressions, the patient just like, you know, like actually like regained consciousness. And he said to me, my, my chest hurts. I mean, I, compressions hurt, I have to say, but it hurt as in like a myocardial infarction. So the ambulance took a long time to come in and I actually like placed the pads for the defibrillator and all, but he didn't do any arrhythmias or anything. So we're very lucky in that sense. And the ambulance came and they performed an ECG and he had a huge anterior myocardial infarction. They took him actually to the hospital where I work on that Saturday. So the next morning he was my patient in the coronary care unit, which was kind of funny. But I was happy because in that situation at that moment, everyone was completely scared and frightened, you know, and I was keeping everyone calm. It was funny because for me, it was something that was so normal and, and to everyone else was freaking out. I, I was happy to be there, actually. Can you give me a sense of how it feels to have someone's life in your hands? It's a very difficult situation. You want to do the best you can. And, 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 and this is something that you have to learn as well. A lot of times patients are really sick. They're just really sick. And no matter what you do, it's going to end badly. This is, was something that was hard for me to, to accept. You know, you want to give the best quality of yourself to that person because that might be the last exchange of, 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 of life that person has, you know, and, um, and you have to keep in mind that he's not there with his family members, that he's on his own. And, you know, you want to be your best at a scientific level, but you, if that patient is conscious, you also have to be your best at, at the human level. That sounds like a Herculean task. And I'm going to have to ask you again, how does it feel to try to do that? It's, it's very difficult because you have to be fast. You have to think fast. You have to give orders. And at the same time, if, if the patient is conscious, uh, you also have to give them peace, you know, in the sense that everything is going to be all right. What types of things do you say to patients who are conscious 
and scared and in pain. So what I try to do is I always try to get in contact with the family. So if the patient was with the family when they like, you know, began having chest pain or, or had the problem that brought them into the hospital, they're usually there. I also try to like be in touch with the family and inform them as soon as I can. I talk to the patient about their family. I tell the patient that ex-family members knows that you're here and that you're safe. And, you know, when, when the situation is a little bit more stable and, you know, you're feeling better, they're going to come in and they're here, they're with you. And uh, this is the way that I try to, to maybe bring their, their loved ones closer to them, even, even if, you know, they're, they're not together. When you're looking into the eyes of a patient about whose recovery you're pessimistic. How do you navigate those fears and feelings you have while maintaining your competence, your diligence, and your speed? I usually tell them the truth because there is no point in, 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 in not saying the truth, really. That being said, I usually also make them aware of the treatments and, and what we're going to do, you know, the, the future, you know, what, what we're going to do to get out of this severe situation. And yeah, I, I, I try to emphasize the situation is, is bad. You know, they're, they're in an advanced state of, of disease. But at the same time, I also always try to, to emphasize on the future, you know, what we're going to do and how you're going to respond. And I, I always try to bring in the word options. You know, really, this is something that I've seen with the years. I think that people really like pass away when they give up. And I've seen this so many times. And there's no scientific explanation to it. But really. Right. I don't know why, but it's interesting. Hmm. I think it's important to like make the patient know that we're not we're not giving up. But at the same time they need to know the truth. And and this is it's likewise for families, you know, I always tell them the truth, always. Man, it sounds just so intense. I'm kind of like like I I just found myself literally on the edge of my seat. Does it feel that way? To you, does it feel hyper intense? Like you have to be a hundred percent engaged. It does, and I think that's good. Like for me, it's it's a normal thing, right? Cardiac arrest. Uh, you know, like this one night shift. I remember I had three patients come in with cardiac arrest. This is, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. You know, like one at ten at night, the other one at two in the morning, and the other one at five in the morning. I was like, because it's it's a lot of work as well. And, you know, like, especially like talking to the families, you know, like I remember the last patient, he had a, a son who was like a teenager and the teenager actually started yelling at me at five in the morning. I mean, I know he wasn't, he wasn't mad at me, angry with me. He was angry with the situation. Right. But it's all of these things that you have to deal with. Hmm. But I think it's good that I feel the intensity and that I know that it's not normal because the moment that. I feel like that is a normal thing. I will lose the connection 
with the patients and what and, and with their families and what is going on. You know what I mean? I do. I do. When a patient arrives fresh at the hospital and they're experiencing a severe cardiac incident, what are the first things that you do as part of the regular course of treatment? So in cardiology, it's usually a myocardial infarction, right? It's the the, the most common emergency. So chest pain and uh you perform an ECG, and if the ECG shows a sign of what's what we call ST elevation, it means that one of the arteries in the heart is clogged by a thrombus. And so blood is not flowing through the, the artery. And so there's a part of the heart that's not receiving uh, blood and is ischemic, right? So that's what hurts. And that, if that is kept constant for a long time that will eventually lead to the death of that area of the heart muscle, right? And so we have to act fast in this sense. And what we perform is a PCI, which is a primary coronary intervention. And I don't do that. I have performed some, but in order to do that, you have to subspecialize and uh, what they do is, uh, so they through usually through the wrist, they go in uh, with some cables through the radial artery up to the heart and they unclog that artery. And this intervention is usually done uh, within an hour. And, um, and the patient after that usually doesn't have any more chest pain. And what we know for sure is that myocardial cells are not dying anymore, which is the important part. First of all, am I right that a mitocardial infarction, the layman's term for that is a heart attack, right? Yes. Okay. So, Gio, I find myself literally gripping my chair tightly <laughs> when I listen to you describe your work. <laughs> Not that this should be about me, but I'm finding it terribly stressful. I've had a couple rough days at work. But I think it's easy for me to say that rough days at work for me are a little bit different than rough days at work for you. I'm wondering if you could tell me what a rough day at work looks like for you. Like, what does it feel like? Well, you can have two types of bad days. You can have a bad day where you just don't have any work, so any patients coming in. And that's a bad day just because you're bored. <laughs> um, and then you can have a bad day where you don't stop. I mean, those are the ones that, you know, you learn the most in probably like you lose years of life, I think, <laughs> due to the due to the stress and and, you know, the responsibility as well. Right. But yeah. Yeah. Bad days. Just a lot of patience. I remember this one time in the emergency room, I, I even had to like jump over like some like patients' beds on, on, in the corridor because there was like no space to walk through. That, that was a bad day. <laughs> oh my gosh. That sounds literally nightmarish. Please forgive me for asking this and you don't have to answer if you don't want to. I'd imagine it's safe to say that you have lost patients in your time, that you've had patients die. No fault of your own. But 
It happens. If you don't mind my asking, how do you deal with that? It has happened. In cardiology, we, we do have very sick patients. And, you know, the heart is important. And so how to deal with it? Well, um, I mean, I, I, I mean, the patients that I've had die in front of me, I haven't forgotten them. None of them have I forgotten. And there are chances of you to, to, to learn from, from what's happened, not in the sense that they're dying as a result of something that was not done right, but rather, you know, depending on how that patient died, you know, maybe, you know, how we spoke to the family, maybe, you know, like, you know, it, it gives you a chance to reflect. Um, from, from these things you learn, and uh, not at the scientific level, but at a human level again. In the sense that, and, and, and it also reminds you, you know, of the, of how fragile life is, you know, and not, not just the cardiological patient's life, but, you know, our life as well, you know, and, and this is one of the unique things I think to, to medicine as a profession is the constant reminder that we have to enjoy every second of our time, tell our loved ones that we love them, you know, things, things can stop at any moment. Uh, thank you so much for that answer and for that reminder. Please forgive me that I have one follow-up question that is more than just a curiosity, I assure you. Is it incumbent upon you to walk out to the families and communicate to them that they lost their loved one? It is, it is what it is. Um, I remember... The, the last time I had to do this, uh, it was with a, with a patient that had consulted multiple times. She had been more than 50% of her life sick in a hospital. And she actually consulted the night of uh, Christmas, and I was on call. I told her that she should stay in the hospital and that we had beds, that she didn't have to be in the emergency room, that I was organizing it so that she could, you know, rapidly go to bed in, in, in the ward upstairs and, and, you know, have a rest. And, and she cried and said to me, you know, I don't want to go back to the hospital. I prefer to go home and die than to stay here. You know, she refused to stay a few weeks later. So a week and a half later, I was on call again and they called me because there was a patient going into cardiac arrest. And so I ran down and when I got there, it was her. We, we started chest compressions. We, we couldn't defibrillate her because she was in a rhythm that's not, um, that you can't shock. Um, and she died that night. And um, I actually, it wasn't directly my responsibility, but I took care of everything because I knew the family already. And it's a, it's a difficult situation. You have to talk to the families. You, you have to give them the chance all to, to speak. Because they 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 need to they need to speak at that moment, and and at that moment you are giving therapy to the to the family rather than the patient. 
I'll bet you're really, really good at that. Tried my best. <laughs> yeah. I also bet it's impossibly hard to do well, but I'll bet you do it. <laughs> I wonder how you manage the stress and the frustration of that. I can only imagine that day after day, week after week, it takes its toll on your physical and mental health. What can you teach me about how to build strength and cope with these impossibly difficult situations? On the days after, after night shift, I would actually go and do some sport. And that would bring me back to life immediately. It was funny. I would go swimming and, or running. And I would be back again, you know, ready for more. <laughs> I would never speak to my boyfriend about these things. Just because, you know, we have very little time to be together, you know. We, we might as well talk about happy things. Yeah. We've talked a lot here about your engagement with patients. You also do a fair amount of research. Tell me about your epidemiological research. The, the idea is uh, to be able to analyze patient databases and be able to actually like, you know, find the reasons why some patients develop more severe stages of disease compared to others, why some people are diseased and why some aren't, right? So it's a different type of life, definitely. A lot more chill, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, like I sleep every night at home and I sleep my eight hours and completely different. But, but I'm enjoying it a lot. So, so I'm very happy. I'm happy that you're happy. I also hope that you can talk a little bit about the role of the team. I think when a lot of people who haven't interfaced with the medical community think about a doctor, they sort of see them as independent actors, but it is very much a team sport, if you will. But I'm wondering if you could describe your role in working on a medical team. So uh, you're right. I mean, uh, at a hospital, it's a hundred percent team. Definitely. Because you just can't do things alone. Throughout my, my life, especially my professional life, I've learned to identify very easily the roles that people around me want to take. I, I try to be a good teammate in the sense that I, I don't like destructive criticism. I like to add things and I like to listen to people and I like to try to make everyone feel equally important. That said, it is very difficult to work in teams. And I don't like to be the leader, but if I feel like there's no leader, I will assume that position, right? Um, but in, especially in cardiology, everyone wants to be a leader. So, yeah. so that's, usually, that's usually not a problem. When you end up taking a leadership role, either by default or because you feel a pressing need to demonstrate your leadership, what type of leader are you? With my junior residents, maybe that, that's a good example. When, when we were working together, I would always encourage them, always 
I think it's uh, the most important thing is always to, you know, be energetic, to want to do things, you know? Yeah. Uh, because then you, you inspire other people. You, if you have to do things, do them well, right? Sounds good to me. It's the way I remember you. <laughs> you work with a lot of people who are bona fide performers, bunch of bunch of people that were probably the top of their class, <laughs> often seen to be the smartest people in the room. A lot of them, I am going to hazard to guess, they have the ego that goes along with that, for better and for worse. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to talk about the role of ego in cooperation with and competition between you and your colleagues. I've, I've never been a big competitor myself, but there is competition. I mean, if you think about it, in, in, in the end, it's, it's a good thing for patients, definitely. You know, like they're competing to be the best. So maybe having a competitive colleague might stimulate another one to be better, yeah. right? In that sense. So maybe sometimes, you know, like ego-driven ambition, you know, uh, can be positive. Whether it is, you know, to like publish more papers, do more research, you know, it will generate more knowledge and bring about better therapies for patients. So it has its positive side. The negative side, I guess, competing all the time must cause a lot of anxiety. Yeah. And, and additional stress to the amount of stress that you go through during your day. It has its positives and its negatives. I would imagine so. You can quash this line of questioning if you want to, but here I go. I very fondly recall my time in Barcelona. One thing that, the one thing that wasn't as fond is that I, I learned about some of like what we now call toxic masculinity that seems so endemic, at least in the culture in and around Barcelona. I was kind of wondering how, if at all, you know, you experienced that being a young female doctor. I remember that. Yeah, it has changed, though. Or maybe I've just become older and, you know, men on the street don't say anything to me <laughs> yeah, anymore, <yeah. laughs> which is a good thing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I have to say, so no, being, being a doctor, especially in the first years, I remember like, you know, patients being like, you know, oh, yeah, nena, you know, like, so girl calling me that. And I was like, you know, I'm the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can still feel it. And, and, you know, what's, what's terrible is that you feel it at all levels in the sense that, you know, maybe sometimes as a cardiologist and around cardiologists, it is interesting that, that there's actually a movement within women in cardiology for like equality among men and women cardiologists, because it doesn't only happen in Spain, it happens elsewhere, that women don't feel as, you know, listened to and trusted you know, when talking during rounds about patients and, you know, when it's more males than females, you know, males tend to like, you know, talk more within themselves, listen to each other rather than, rather than to the judgment that a female cardiologist has. And this is something that's quite common. Well, I'm happy to learn that there are efforts being made. Yeah. The European Society of Cardiology, there's this whole movement awesome. within. Awesome. I have to say that, you know, like, I should tell you this because you knew me before. Yeah. 
so you know kind of like the essence of me, right, in a way, because you knew me before all of this. I have to say that it's been very hard. If I wouldn't have done medicine and cardiology and everything that I've done, I would have never come to know myself as I do now. So you meet a part of yourself that, like, when you're faced with the most terrible situations and you, and you learn to survive through them, right? You, in the end, connect to your innermost self, right? What have you learned about yourself in this intense, rigorous process of becoming and being a cardiologist? Well, that I'm, I'm, that I'm capable of doing a lot of things. You know, like you, you have to put up with so much, so much in the sense of like being there for the patient and being them there for the team and being there for the family and being there for yourself, you know, and, and trying to make everything, you know, as, as perfect as you can. It's not that I didn't think that I wouldn't be able to do all of this. It's just that maybe I, I never fully like measured the amount of well-being that I could bring to people. And, and I've known this thanks to like the incident of the person at the gym. We've, we're friends now. And then this other patient that I had who, who actually, well, this is another story, but he actually tattooed an M for my last name with wings behind his ear and his neck. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> yeah. How does that feel? Weird. Yeah. I, I, I think that's probably the best answer. <laughs> There's no need. There's no need to like express gratitude in that way. But that's the last news that I've had of him. So it was interesting. Yeah. You might want to keep that the last news. I think that's like, that might be the best way for that story yeah. to end. <laughs> De de <laughs> definitely. Um, uh, can I push into something that's come up a couple of times? Yeah. You have brought up how your commitment to community service is central to your motivation to do the work you do. This was the original plan. <laughs> it's always been the original plan. Uh, I think the drive definitely was to... To, to, to make a, make a difference in, in other people's lives. I mean, as I said, you know, if you have to work, at least work in something that can, you know, make other people's lives a little easier and a little better. Gio, I am genuinely inspired by your commitment to the public good, your commitment to community service. And that should be enough but I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you for one more thing. We here at the Studs Podcast, we love stories. And I'm hoping you might be so kind as to tell this story of one professional triumph and one professional failure. You've already told some really splendid stories, but I have to ask you for two more. Why don't we start with the failure so that we could end on the note of triumph? Would you be so kind? Okay, I'll try. <laughs> so professional failure. I would say maybe in general, just not having enough time to dedicate the time that people need to talk. Patients or families or my colleagues, you know. And the professional triumph, 
Uh, I'll be more specific with this one. There is this one story. Uh, so it was my fourth year of residency. I had just begun taking the role of being the older resident at night. It was hard to to get a hold of the, you know, in the end, you get used to it. So I, I had had this very bad night shift. And then, you know, so we get a rest day. And then the next day we will go back to work. And so the next day back to work, I was dealing with all the calls from the emergency room. And I remember that I came in and my colleagues from the previous night told me that uh, there was this young guy. It was the third time that he was consulted into the emergency room with chest pain, that they did an echo and there was nothing that they could see in the echo that was wrong, that he was supposed to be discharged home during the day, but maybe that I should go see him again, see how he is. So that day, I, I, I woke up really late. Like I ran to work, literally. I did not have breakfast or even a coffee. And I was just thinking of that coffee. <laughs> yeah. But I thought, you know, I'll, I'll go see this guy because he's young and he'll want to leave early and then he can have, you know, his own breakfast or whatever. He can be home by midday, right? Because, you know, things, things you know, it, they take long and in Spain they take longer, right? <laughs> so I thought, you know, let's, let's, let's do someone a favor today. <laughs> and so I went down and I decided to do an echo again because I thought, you know, I mean, they did an echo. They didn't see anything. He's consulted three times. He had a lot of chest pain apparently. So I'm going to do it again, see what happens. And so I did the echo and um, what he had is he, he had an aortic dissection. That that's that kills you. Yeah. Like that's an emergency, a, a surgical emergency. And so I saw it and I, I, I didn't tell him at first because I mean what you need to do for that is a a CT. When I went into the room, he was actually looking at Instagram on his phone. It's funny. And then he saw me with the echo machine and he said, Again, another one? And he he complained. And I said, Look, you know, you weren't you were in a lot of pain. We have to, you know, recheck the images. And so I did the echo. I saw, I saw what, what it was. And I told him we have to do a CT. And he said, what? He was all angry at me. So we went down to the CT. The CT confirmed what I suspected. And so I said to him, you know, look, you have a situation that's life-threatening and we need to take you to the operating room right now. He got super angry at me. He yelled at me. He said to me, why, why are you doing this to me? What have I done to you? Then he said to me that he wouldn't sign informed consent, that he wanted his mother with him. He was 35. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like, look, talk to the surgeon, you know, he's responsible now, not me. I'm not, I'm not going to, to operate. They took him to the operating room and he got operated. He got, uh, the ascending aorta substituted and he's alive and we've talked afterwards and and he actually like sent me a plant and texted me for like the anniversary of the day that i diagnosed his dissecting aorta <laughs> but um it was a good thing in the sense that you know someone that had consulted three times that wanted to go home that almost refused to get a second look you know actually got diagnosed with what he had. When you're walking down the street, are you ever able to just take solace in the fact that you save lives? 
it, it definitely gives reason to my life. And and I, I, I do feel, I feel good that I, I can bring something to people. Well, Gio, you and a few people like you in this world give reason to my life. You know, I fondly recall my first class, my first day teaching in Barcelona, and you <laughs> were in the front row. <laughs> Intense. <laughs> you know, you were so bright and so challenging. And you remain as bright and challenging as ever. But you seem to, despite the Herculean nature of your work as a cardiologist, you seem to have found some real peace and some real purpose. And that makes me really happy. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been a bona fide pleasure. Thank you so much. And that there, my friends, is my effort to keep up with Gio. I couldn't keep up with her when she was a 10th grader. I couldn't keep up with her when she was an 11th grader. And I sure as hell can't keep up with her now that she's a cardiologist. But consider me a fanboy. That woman's a cut above. Okay, so subscribe and leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you, and you got the means to give a few, please consider supporting me over at patreon.com slash studs. But much, much more importantly, I just want to urge you to do the things that make you feel connected and make you feel whole. And I want to urge you to avoid the things that make you feel disconnected and alone. As always, we're all in this one together. I'll catch you next week.